0: Thank you, band. Wow, what a treat. Uh, my name is Scott, I'm one of the pastors with Artisan Church, and it's just great to see all you in the Japanese Hall today. Uh, if it's your first time coming here, welcome. Welcome to this place, glad you made it here. Um, just have to shout out a friend, a former pastor of mine in the house, I know he will not like me doing this, but Roichi Takeda with his wife Lydia. So thank you for coming this morning. Oh, you got applause. I never get applause. That's great. Whoa, yeah. oh, whoa, oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Uh, so a uh, couple years back, I was at a funeral with my, hello. Go for it. <laughs> Is that River? Uh, I was at a funeral a couple a couple years back with our family, uh, a friend and family member that had passed away, and uh, it also happened to be a time where my youngest son was uh, in a bit of a queen phase, uh, the band, yes. uh, and loved to sing, like, we will rock you at the top of his lungs and uh, he even requested for his, I think it was like his fifth birthday, fourth birthday, a We Will Rock You themed birthday. Okay, so we tried as best as possible. We didn't sing happy birthday, we sang We Will Rock You. And we had a cake uh, made out of a drum, and it's like everyone was thumping, clapping. And we're at this funeral and, It was a really somber moment. People were sharing a large funeral, maybe 800,000 people. 800,000 people. 800 or 1,000. Do we normally interact in sermons? (laughs) Hasn't been here in a while, yeah. I do have to say it's good to have you in the room, Nellie B. Now, shut up. Lots of applause, wow. (laughs) Anyways, the somber moment, 800,000 people in this uh, room and Leo decides, now is the time to sing, We Will Rock You. And at the top of his lungs, I I didn't even see it coming, just, we will, we will rock you. Uh, And and I'm like, Leo, shut up. Everyone turns around and after the funeral, I felt horrible. I went up to my friend. I was like, I, I don't know, he's in the queen phase. And I apologized, and someone was listening into my apology and said, At least he didn't sing another one Bites of Dust. Yeah? Uh, I wonder have you witnessed something like this where an action takes place? that changes the atmosphere in a whole room, like singing We Will Rock You at a Funeral. Maybe, maybe you're thinking about a specific popular public event, an instance of awkwardness where something crazy happened and it affected the whole room, an important celebration perhaps, someone made an awkward comment about someone's hair, someone got mad, and an awkward act of aggression that distracted from the celebration. If you're thinking of John 12, one to eight, then you'd be crap. Yeah. Yeah. You. The celebration was a meal for Jesus. The awkward comment about someone's hair. John is telling us how Mary used expensive perfume to clean Jesus' feet with her hair person who got mad, Judas, and uh, the act of aggression that distracted from the celebration. Judas challenges Mary's actions. So we're gonna look at this. Evelyn read this earlier, thank you, Evelyn. Um, We're gonna look at this text together, John 12, 1-2. First, let's look at the scene of the incident here. Uh, It's a celebration. Uh, And notice, if you've been around, Artisan, we've been following the lectionary readings. Uh, We've now shifted from Luke, to John's Gospel, and it says in the first verse, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. I I think it's worth pausing here. A dead man was raised from the dead and is here. And John is saying this, where Lazarus lived, and he's always gonna have a comma after his name now the one whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Like, this is crazy, and he's, I think, reminding us, like, just in case you forgot, this crazy, ridiculous miracle happened, and he's just there at the party. Okay. Resurrection is in the room. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor, uh, because what else do you do if you raise someone from the dead, throw them a party? Thank you, Jesus. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Uh, I love this text. It's an appropriate one for the fifth Sunday of Lent. Um, We're kind of looking ahead to Holy Week. Next week is Palm Sunday, if you can believe it. Jesus' death, resurrection immediately ahead. Some of the characters in the background are mentioned. Martha, Lazarus uh, some extras that are reclining at the table with them. Uh, and I don't know how you picture this event, but maybe something like this. Uh, this is an old, uh, s- a sketch of an old scene of, uh, Roman people enjoying what was called a triquillium, tri, I can't pronounce it quite right, but something like that, where people would sit in this U-shaped kind of reclining posture. So. Maybe not as fancy as this, and certainly not like this. Uh, And we're never gonna get it quite accurate, but maybe a little bit more like this next one. They're reclining at the table. Uh, Some of the main characters that we heard in the story are Jesus, Mary, and Judas. So let's look at the incident at hand. Verse three, Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. A normal practice to wash people's feet, uh, but this was anything but normal. Mary broke open an expensive jar of perfume and decided to use that as the cleaning method. And instead of a towel, use her hair. I'm not exactly sure why, but it was an extravagant, kind of out-of-the-normal, surprising gesture of generosity. Uh, It says that the perfume was equivalent to a year's wages. Uh, In Vancouver, that would be like the annual salary of around uh, (laughs) $60,000. I had in my notes 60K, and I forgot what the K meant. Uh, dollars. Where did she get it, and why did she use it now? A lot has been speculated about this. Was it leftover from Lazarus, who, who died, was, risen, was raised? Or was it actually intended for Jesus? Uh, she was preparing for his upcoming death. There's not a ton of info about her motives for washing Jesus' feet with the perfume, but I like what this one theologian said. She took the costly perfume and anointed his feet and wiped them with her hair. It was an extravagant act of devotion. Evelyn Underhill writes that worship is summed up in sacrifice. The movement of generosity in response to God's sacrificial act of redemption in Christ and our participation in it. There was a sumptuousness about our sacrifice that is true of all saints, a surprising excessiveness in their compassion and generosity. So Mary, counting no cost, anointed him. Then we look at the response. First, Judas responds, then Jesus, verse 4. But one of his disciples... Judas Iscariot who was later to betray him John is very helpful to point out this guy is he's got ulterior motives Uh, he objected why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor it was worth a year's wages Uh, a valid a valid interjection he did not say this because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So we get a glimpse of, of Judas's motives here in piping up. He's not actually interested in the poor. He's interested in keeping the money bag full so that he can skim a little off the top to pay people and eventually to pay uh, Jesus' attackers, the ones who arrest him. Judas is not interested in entering into this foolish act of worship, of devotion that Mary is engaging in, only interested in himself. He doesn't even appreciate or acknowledge the generous act. Then Jesus, his response has always baffled me a bit. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. What is Jesus saying here? I asked the question because I genuinely don't know the answer. What is he what is he saying? I'm not even satisfied after reading many commentaries about this. What is Jesus saying? And the bit about anointing, is he is he referring to his crucifixion, knowing that it's coming and this act is actually anointing him for burial? Lazarus is in the corner? Yeah. You're gonna need that. Like two days in, it gets really rotten. Or What, what was the motive here? What, what did Jesus mean by, you will always have the poor among you? Uh, interesting to look at the context, uh, they are in the city of Bethany, which literally means House of the Poor. It's just outside the city of Jerusalem and just outside the temple along the Pilgrim Road and a hospice has been set up there in Bethany to welcome and care for pilgrims. It's also become an attraction for the sick and destitute of the Jerusalem, the greater Jerusalem area. Reminds me a lot about the downtown east side known for the abundance of service providers, places to eat, sleep, work through addiction, housing. Uh, At one point, I don't know if this is still accurate, but known as the poorest postal code in North America, definitely Canada. And uh, I take Jesus' words and think about our our neighborhood here. Uh, They seem a little bit awkward, and I've often interpreted them as Jesus dismissing the poor, or almost a little arrogant. I'm here, that'll be fine. And so I did what uh, I often do when I don't know something as I ask a friend, Uh, and so this time I met up with a good friend, Jobin David, uh, who many of you know, I think, and love. He is, uh, yeah, here's a picture of us when we were doing the home liturgy. Uh, That's me on the left and Jobin on the right, in case you're wondering. Uh, he's the executive director of Jacobs Well, and uh, so I was asking Jobin about this. How do you how do you take this this verse? Uh, the poor will be with you always, uh, and he he had a brilliant response, and I'm going to quote him uh, on this. This is a conversation, so it's not written words. So I try to quote him the best I can remember. I'm learning to look at the world not as needs, but to look at the world as people so at jacob's well we don't want to tailor our vision and mission based on need but on the people hmm. i like that because the poor can become this collective term for just massless few or uh, who are these people but what jobin is saying and i think maybe even what jesus is giving dignity is to the fact that these are individual people and i He's saying, I'm an individual person here with you. Um, it's funny, Jobin said in our conversation, the church, church people are generally pretty good at um, welcoming and being friends, but as soon as it comes to mission, it's like, ooh, strategy, and like, we're going into the darkness and we're doing this. And he's like, I just look at it as expanding your group of friends. <laughs> I just love that. Uh, We don't have to be all covert and strategic about it, it's just friendship. The call is simply to be a friend. I think Jesus prefers also the personal over the collective, even here in this passage uh, we see that. Um, Side note, New Century Version. uh, In some Bibles there's headings for the passages, New Century Version. Uh, says, uh, Jesus with friends in Bethany. I love that. A lot of them say, Mary anoints Jesus. Mary anoints Jesus. This one, Jesus with friends, hanging out. And so this passage, I don't think, is con- condemning or justifying complacency toward those in need. Uh, and he even references an old passage from Deuteronomy, ties it in with caring for the poor and his death, uh, and again, I'm gonna lean on other words from helpful people like Wan Lee, who said, Jesus then compares his impending absence with the plight of the poor. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Incredibly, this has been interpreted to apply that nothing should be done for the poor. Jesus' saying comes from Deuteronomy 15, 11, which enjoins Israel to open your hand to the poor because there will never cease to be some need. This actually means that something should be done because of reversals even when people struggle hard against poverty. This alone could be a whole sermon in itself, but I don't want to focus here because I don't think that's what John is uh, shining a light on. So what is the focus of the story? Uh, And again, a question that I'm asking, and even deeper than that, coming in today, asking and praying, what is the Spirit saying to us today? What is the fresh word of God for us to eat, to consume, and to take with us? I wanna invite you into that same work today um, that you wouldn't just uh, hear and consume, but do the work with me. What is the Spirit saying today um, I have to confess, the content that I've been wrestling with this week is amazing. This sermon, I don't—I have questions about if it's if it's going to be helpful, but the content is amazing. So if we dig into the content. I'm uh, I'm certain it will yield good fruit. I just want to stop here. This is not typical in the middle of the sermon and pray. Um, and to pray along those lines. What spirit are you saying to us today? So let's invite the spirit, if you haven't already, ask God for a fresh word. Gracious and loving God, creator. We need you. Pray that we wouldn't let this moment pass, but that you would speak to us and reveal something, something new, something fresh that we can take with us today. Even if it's just a new question or a new idea. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. I do think a lot of the story points to this woman, Mary, uh, and let's not be confused, there's lots of Marys in uh, the Bible. This is not the mother of Jesus, this is Mary Magdalene, this is a follower and a disciple, the sister of Lazarus, remember, comma, who Jesus rose from the dead. It seems that John wants to draw attention to her. her. Uh, Unfortunately, her generous act often gets overshadowed by the drama that that unfolds by Judas and Jesus' words about the poor, but let's just pause here and enjoy the beauty of this scene, which is what John wants us to do. Verse three, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I love this last line. John didn't need to add it, it doesn't move the story forward. But he adds this emphasis, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now I had a really horrible idea, and I'm not gonna do it just to just to let you know. I brought, it's still in my backpack. I brought a spray, kind of like a body spray. And I, I was literally going to run around this place and just go, yeah! just just unleash a can of this stuff to give the sense of this aroma filling the room. Uh, the better my better judgment, uh, in the form of a friend, helped me uh, not to do this today. And, and I know there are reactions and, and things to senses like that. So. But imagine if I did that, imagine, <laughs> should I? <laughs> imagine that, imagine that filling the room as soon as she did it, the act, that generous act, her seemingly foolish act, it changed the atmosphere of the room. Even while Judas and Jesus are arguing, uh, this, the, the aroma, is just filling the air. I just love it. And also notice in the story, Mary says nothing. But what she does is everything. Judas, on the other hand, he says a lot of things. I imagine Judas and maybe some of the others there asking, Why, why, Mary? Like, we were having a perfectly good meal celebration on your friend that was raised from the dead. Now why did you have to spoil it with this crazy, like why do you have to be so crazy or dramatic? Can't you just wash Jesus' feet like a normal person? But Mary's act of devotion literally changed the atmosphere of the room, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And Jesus says there is something very special about this gift in Mark's Gospel it's told in each of the Gospels, but in Marks, he adds, truly, I tell you, whenever the Gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Uh, And what has she done? Other than anointing his, his feet. Well, at my first glance, she took a risk. She displayed radical, devotion and generosity, uh, and that changed the room entirely. Uh, notice also there was two things that filled the room, the fragrance of Mary's perfume and Judas's complaining. Uh, Jesus praises Mary for how she decides to fill the room. And for us, I think Mary helps us break past what philosopher Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame. Uh, now, just go with me here. I'm going to nerd out a little bit on a Canadian philosopher uh, named Charles Taylor. He's uh, pictured right here. He wrote the book *The Secular Age*, which I confess I have not read. It's like eight hundred and seventy-four pages long. I've read bits of it, and I've I've heard of a lot of people that know what they're doing when it comes to big tones like this explain it. Uh, so I'm not the final word here on Charles Taylor, just let that be clear. Um, but there's a help to James K.A. Smith wrote a book called How Not to Be Secular, which is essentially a summary, or as he calls it, a hitchhiker's guide to the secular age. Charles Taylor talks about the imminent frame being the notion that everything in the world is part of a natural order understandable without reference to anything outside itself, and simply as a matter of causal uh, causal relationships. What does that mean? Uh, good question. Well, again, I asked another friend, uh, shout out to John Howe, pastor of Reality Church, uh, whom I know and love very dearly. He drew these pictures, so he can thank John for them. Here's the first one. Picture one. In the West, uh, we live in a secular age, an age where it is difficult to regain a sense of enchantment, connection to the supernatural, the spiritual of God, spirits transcendent above, and the imminent frame is marked by this barrier around the self. This, This is where we often live, in this imminent frame. Here we are limited by the grid of time and space and material, Charles Taylor says, the door is barred against further discovery. The result then, people often feel disenchanted with a real purpose for living, for meaning. Uh, But Taylor says, we don't have to be trapped in this imminent frame. The self is searching for deeper sources of meaning and there are opportunities for re-enchantment. I love that. Even the word enchantment, this is not a word we use often. So picture two is uh, where he believes in this secular wasteland, this landscape we find ourselves in, young people will begin again to explore beyond the boundaries. And I don't think this is excluded to just young people. Meaning that Taylor believes, um, meaning belief the transcendent can be found in things like poetry, other arts, or a way to encounter meaning outside of the mind. A reenchantment is possible. Have you ever listened to a really good song and just felt like an out-of-body experience? This happened to me a couple days ago, actually, when Nelson preached and played Sophie and Stevens in the middle of the sermon. Oh, and it just, it's so, it's so funny how uh, a song can just say so much more uh, than our words can do sometimes. And my kids, after one of them said, that was a really nice song, uh, who is that? I'm like, oh gosh, i failed you, I'm sorry. <laughs> and then on the way home, we listened to uh, al We can find re-enchantment in nature standing before the beauty of an ocean. Uh, I have this friend that has this compulsive need to get before the ocean. He says, I just, if I can just get to the ocean, I'll be okay. <laughs> or the beauty and complexity of a single leaf. Or climbing a mountain. Or, like I said, a beautiful song. Um, one thing I know nothing about, but uh, Taylor talks about running a marathon. Uh, Lawrence, you can uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you're not doing a a marathon to win. You're doing it because, I think, there's a common goal and you're doing it with others. And it's something out of the normal. Who who runs that far? No, seriously, who runs that far? (laughs) (laughs) Why? Taylor says we can have these moments of aesthetic communion that re-enchant us. The call for us in the West, then, is rediscovery of enchantment. All that to say, that sidebar, that Mary's act is an example of breaking past this imminent frame and rediscovering enchantment. It's uncomfortable, it's impractical, it's risky. And uh, one invitation I want to just bring before you this morning is the invitation to enter in. How are you being invited to rediscover enchantment, to enter in? Uh, Last week we talked about the prodigal son. The prodigal son, as we know, has an older brother, and in the story of the prodigal son, the older brother, in verse 28 of chapter 15, uh, became angry and refused to go in. He refused to enter in. The younger son had returned. The celebration was on. What was dead was now alive, but the older brother had grown complacent and refused to enter in. Henry Nouwen talks about uh, Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son. He says, there are many elder sons and elder daughters who are lost while still at home. And it is this lostness, characterized by judgment and condemnation, anger and resentment, bitterness and jealousy, that is so pernicious and so damaging to the human heart. Often we think about lostness in terms of actions that are quite visible. The lostness of the elder son is much harder to identify. A dark power erupts in him and boils to the surface. Suddenly there becomes glaringly visible A resentful, proud, unkind, selfish person. So what does it look like to enter in? What uh, is holding us back, perhaps, from entering in? Like the older son, resurrection is happening right in front of him, he can't see it. There's a complacency and a defiance even, a refusal to enter in. Or like Judas, hard to break through the imminent frame. It just doesn't make sense. Why would you do this? Impractical, silly, foolish. Meanwhile, Lazarus is in the corner. Hey guys, what's up? Jesus raised me from the dead. (laughs) He doesn't say anything either, but resurrection is certainly in the room. Another way to look at it is to enter in uh, as uh, taking a seat at the table. Um, This is a popular image that we've talked about and shared here. It's the Rublev, the Trinity. Um, And uh, I just love how it always has struck me there's an empty space at the table. And I don't know if it's just my audacity, but I, I like to think I can sit at that table. I get to I get to enter into the Trinity, the love of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We need those who will lead us into enchantment, those who will point us toward resurrection, to remind us that resurrection life is in the room. I was uh, I was. Uh, not sure if I was going to tell the story, but I think it is an example for me, personally, of, uh, of entering in and what that means, what that looks like for me these days. And it happened uh, at cohort retreat uh, with a lot of my friends in a room. In, where were we? Maple Ridge? Had a, it was like a dude ranch. It was kind of strange. Uh, some cowboy. Place. Yeah. <laughs> Christian Ranch. And, um, but something spectacular happened, and it happened when Terry was leading this exercise for us uh, around grief. And we started our weekend off by uh, kind of diving in further to death and moving toward resurrection. Um, I didn't plan it. I didn't conjure it up. But in the middle of this exercise where I was thinking of Our dear friend Karen, who had passed away just a month prior to that uh, weekend, and uh, yeah, just grieving, and then also feeling a sense of grief for the room. A lot of people grieving things, uh, grieving things from COVID, loss of friendship, loss of uh, relationship. Um, It was it was a hard moment. It was uh, yeah, grief filled, and in that moment. Uh, I've not not done mushrooms before, but I imagine this is what it would be like, and from friends that have done them, they say, yeah, that's like mushrooms, you did mushrooms. (laughs) Um, Just this kind of sense of like warbliness and like uh, kind of a a fuzzy feeling. Um, I just kind of felt a little bit out of body and kind of like loose, and was sitting back in my chair And just this profound sense of God's love just like filled me. And it came to this moment where I just was like, I love myself. (laughs) And not in an arrogant way, like I'm awesome or incredible or anything. It was just this deep sense of approval and love and grace and joy just overwhelming me, like flooding me to the point like I, I just felt like a little bit drunk and just kind of walking through this smirk on my face, and oh, I, I, I've had to come back to that moment as an example of, for me, reenchantment, but also to point to and remind myself that resurrection life is possible. Resurrection life is in the room that its fragrance fills the room. And so I wanna invite us this morning um, we do this every week, but we come to the table. And perhaps this is a moment of reenchantment for us. Where we say the words of the table liturgy with fresh eyes, fresh hearts. I want to invite you to this place. And uh, the good news is that this table is for both Judas and Mary. It's for the faithful and the unfaithful. Rachel Held Evans says, this is what God's kingdom is like. A bunch of outcasts and oddballs gathered at the table not because they're rich or worthy or good but because they're hungry because they said yes and there's always room for more so come this morning with intention with faith let's rehearse the words of the gospel confess our sin receive grace and celebrate